1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Keep or Cut podcast, a proud member of the Pictureless Podcast Network. I'm Pete Ball, joined as always by Chad Young. Please consider following the show on Twitter at at Keep or Cut. You can follow me at at Baseball, and you can follow Chad at at Chad Young. We are entering
2: episode 70 here, Chad, the big 7-0. Yeah, kind of crazy. You know, you get you. you start one of these things, you wonder, like, will it make it a year? Will it make it, like, it just, we're just going right along, 70.
1: It just keeps going. I mean, is it, I I guess this would be our Manny Margot episode?
2: I guess. I I guess, Uh, I mean. Yeah, I don't know who the best 70s are in baseball. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think there's a whole
1: lot of 70s, and I don't know how reliable the source is. I tried to quickly look it up, and it's telling me that Jazz Chisholm is number 70, and he is... Number two. So not really close on that one. Although apparently new Red yeah. Sox catcher, Reese McGuire, is number 70. I'll have to double check that
2: one. But uh did did you see Brett Phillips new number for the Orioles? I did not. I believe he is wearing number sixty-six, and Phillips sixty-six is the gas station. <laughs> and so I, I have to imagine, just based on everything I know about Brett Phillips, that at some point in his life, he was like, I'm going to do this. And then it, <laughs> the opportunity came up and he was like, you know what? I'm doing it. It's happening. Because <laughs> yeah, There's no way that. that's an accident. That fits the personality
1: pretty well there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, folks, we're here to talk,
2: obviously, about the trade deadline. We're not going to ignore it. Um, it. It certainly has implications for as much as as much as you and I might want to after the Red Sox and the Red Sox going out their big acquisition is Eric Hosmer the Guardians it's like I think the Guardians literally just slept through their alarm that day like they woke (laughs) up too late and they're like oh no today was my final (laughs) I mean I,
1: I was hoping the Red Sox would sell and I guess the next best thing if you want your team to sell is to hope that they pretty much do nothing and the Red Sox pretty much did nothing. So, I mean, we, we can start there, but what I was going to say is of course it has implications for the 2022 season, but us, you know, looking long-term, this is a long-term fantasy baseball league podcast. There's certainly implications that, uh, are in place for for all of these trades that uh that took place or at least most of them. Some of them are certainly short term, the rentals and guys like that, but even those kinds of deals where, you know, a player in a 1-year contract is traded away could open up the door for other players as we could see take place in Cincinnati, as we could see take place in Kansas City. So anyway, Chad, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the Red Sox and this uh curious Eric Cosmer move?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm very interested to get your take on it because it so let me tell you it's an outsider what I see like first of all Hosmer is under contract No, he could opt out but he's under contract for what three more years after this one at 13 million a year that doesn't seem like a huge contract and it's not it's not like I you know a bunch of people were like oh I can't believe they got someone to take on that contract and it's like meh that money is not that big a deal like it's just not a huge amount but well, the Padres it's are he, paying basically, right? And the, the, right, the Padres—that's right. The Padres are paying yeah. it, so they needed the contract off their books for tax purposes, but they—they they were happy to send the money. That's right. So, from that perspective, it's like okay, fine, no big deal. But like, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I think Hosmer can opt out this year. I think that's right, but like, I don't know why. He, I mean, no chance. <laughs> I it it all depends, right? Because like, he should have just seen. That the team he was on was literally trying to offload him and that everyone in baseball was like, nah, (laughs) I'm not going to take him like that's not going to happen. So you would think that he would you'd think he would opt in instead of opting out. But like he also strikes me as the kind of guy who may think more highly of himself than the market does (laughs) and may feel like he can do better. Maybe he also just wants to leave. Like, I, I don't know. So we'll have to see. If I'm a Red Sox fan, if I'm in your shoes, I am just like praying he takes that opt out because if he (laughs) doesn't, is he like, what do they do? Do they eventually like, I mean, Cassis has to take over that job. I don't think you, like we talked a little bit about um, last episode about the, you know, if the Red Sox, maybe it was on the, maybe it wasn't even on the episode, but we talked a little bit about like the Red Sox could, could pick up another first base type. And like Cassis and someone else could share first base and DH, and that's fine. Like, there's there's nothing that stops them. Oh, it's because I mentioned Nathaniel Lowe. I mentioned Nathaniel Lowe as a possible. Like, but Hosmer is not who I had in mind. And, and I don't think the Red Sox want Hosmer to be their first baseman and Cassis their DH, or vice versa. So like, I don't know. You tell me what's the plan? What am I missing? Um, so the, there's layers to it. Like, I, I don't think the
1: Red Sox necessarily. I don't want to say they don't care if he opts in or not, but because they're not paying the contract, he's just a a solid clubhouse guy, unspectacular bat that's barely above average, according to WRC+. plus. Like, I, it, It's whatever. He doesn't block Cassis in any way. Um, that much was clear. And he actually went to the same high school as Tristan Cassis. He's known Tristan Cassis since he was 12 years old, and there's a little bit of a mentoring thing there. To me, this was just like, Heim Bloom, I guess, being opportunistic, I hesitate to give him too much credit because he certainly made some questionable moves over the last year or so. But he saw that, you know, like we all did, Hosmer was vetoing that trade to Washington and there was an opportunity to maybe get a free Eric Hosmer, which is basically all you should ever be paying to land Eric Hosmer. Um, he he isn't a great candidate to DH, right? Like I, I, The Red Sox historically have wanted to get a lot of power out of DH at the same time he's a better player than Bobby Dahlbeck. And as a just as a Red Sox fan, as a baseball fan, the production the Red Sox have got out of first base this year between Bobby Dahlbeck, who I tried to warn everyone about, tried to warn you, he sucks. But between him and Franchi Cordero, who I have no idea how that guy is still in baseball, between those two trying to hold down first base, I'm not going to say holding down first base. I'll say they tried to hold it down. Uh, like To get just a veteran... World Series winner, first baseman. It's amazing how we can have such a different perspective on the same player, depending on your fandom, right? Like a Padres fan is probably like, oh my God, not only do we get Juan Soto, we somehow got rid of that guy, but Red Sox fans, we're like, you know what? We'll take a free Eric Hosmer, considering the production we've got from first base. So anyway, fantasy implications, Hosmer, who cares? I I expect him to opt in um, because I don't think he's going to get a three-year $39 million contract elsewhere. I don't think the Red Sox care because they're not paying for it. But I guess the one thing is, if you're a long-term, if you have Bobby Dahlbeck in your long-term leagues, like man, his his playtime is about to absolutely disappear. Already 27 years old, he's striking out all the time. He can barely play the field. I, I'm done with him. And it seems like the Red Sox with this move between having Cassis ready to go and and now bringing in Eric Cosmer, who's likely opting in, also seem pretty
2: done with Bobby Dahlbeck. Yeah, it does does seem like Dahlbeck's the odd man out. I it still feels like. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just undervaluing Eric Hosmer. Is that possible? It feels, <laughs> well, I mean, like to me, if I'm the Red Sox, I'd be like, look, if he opts in, let's just DFA him and let San Diego pay him for the next three years to go do whatever he wants to do and get him <laughs> out of here. Um, because, you can then replace him. Like you're going to have to replace JD Martinez, right? He's a free agent Um, or bring back JD Martinez, I guess. But like in, in, I don't see a world where Eric Hosmer is playing a role on this team next year. That's a positive world for the Red Sox because it either means he's taking up your DH spot, either directly or by forcing Cassis to DH or it means Cassis has not panned out at all. Like it just, or he's like in a bench role, but why would you want a a guy who can only play first base in a bench role? So like, I, I don't know. I, I look at this and to me, he is a, like his presence on the roster is a net negative. And, and so that's where like, if I'm the Red Sox, I'm hoping he opts out. Because then I don't have to DFA him. But then again, it doesn't cost me any money anyway. So like, I don't know. Maybe you just tell him, opt in, take the Padre's money, we'll we'll let you go anyways. You can go yeah. go yeah. somewhere else. Uh, that
1: and that could be it, right? I he could certainly be traded. I think no matter what happens with Eric Osmer, it, it it's still signaling the end of Bobby Dalback. Um, I just all, all I know is two things. The Red Sox have the second worst war out of first base this year and if they aren't going to sell then that's kind of telling the team we're trying to compete. So they they as crazy as it sounds by bringing in Eric Cosmer, they improved. As for, for going forward, their best first base asset Tristan Cassis, this does not impact him at all. If anything it's maybe a somewhat intangible positive because of his relationship with Eric Cosmer. So I I don't really I don't I just don't have a lot of feelings towards this other than the fact that the Red Sox going to be marginally be marginally more watchable this year. But in terms of fantasy, Eric Hosmer could be playing in cores and I wouldn't care. So the fact that he's on the Red Sox, like I,
2: I still, I don't think he's worth going to pick up
1: or anything like that.
2: Yeah, no, you're you're going from Dahlbeck's negative 0.2 F4 to Hosmer's 0.3, which those are two very bad players, but you're picking up half a win, I guess. So, hey, why not?
1: And you forgot about Franchi Cordero. Like on the yeah. season, the only team that has a more negative war out of first base is Pittsburgh with minus one point four at the Red Sox or minus one point one. And if you're at the Red Sox with your six hundred trillion dollar payroll, the fact that you're in the same sentence as the Pirates is frankly embarrassing. Um yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll take Osmer. Why not? Um but there are certainly other more significant trades that took place, Chad. And as we begin to dissect them, I want to kind of again reiterate that Chad and I are gonna be focusing on Almost all of the trades that took place, but more on like, you know, the deeper league implications and the long term implications. And so, Chad, now that we've gotten we got the biggest trade out of the way, Eric Cosmer to the Red Sox, the Eric the Cosmer now, deal. Yeah. Now that we've we've finally moved on from that behemoth trade. Uh, is there one that sticks out to you that you want to take a look at or a particular player that's getting playtime now that you want to examine?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the one I kind of want to look at, and, and I'm, I'm going to try to look at multiple things at once, <laughs> which is uh, the Yankees, two trades the Yankees made. One was the Jordan Montgomery for Harrison Bader trade. The other, the trade where they picked up Andrew Benintendi. And I think it's important. The, the thing I want to sort of jump at jump at here is... I, I hear – I've heard lots of chatter about like, oh, Benintendi and Bader are moving to a much better park. This is a much better situation for them. And so like the first thing I just want to sort of note is that while Yankee Stadium is very much a better power park than Bush or Kaufman, like a lot, a lot better, Bader and Benintendi are not the kind of guys who are going to benefit from that. And I don't just mean like, you know, this isn't just like, Oh, they're power hitters. And so instead of hitting 25, they could hit 30 or 35 or something like that. Like they don't have swings that will benefit meaningfully. And so like looking at Bader, according to baseball savant, he would, if he played all of his games at Yankee stadium this year, have four home runs. (laughs) If he had played all his games at Bush, he'd have two. Now that's a big jump. However, that four is, here are all the stadiums at, that he would have three, four, or five at. Anaheim, Oakland, Seattle, Texas, Toronto, Baltimore, Tampa, Boston, Yankee Stadium, Kansas City, Detroit, Minnesota, San Francisco, San Diego, Atlanta, Miami, um, City Field, Philly, Milwaukee. So that's like basically... He's not moving into some like great place for him. He's just moving into another park like that. That's all it is for Bader for Ben and Tendy, I think it's pretty similar. Let me pull that up real quick. I looked at it before and I, but it, but he's another, like he's a line drive hitter. It's not like he's hitting a bunch of fly balls that are dying at the warning track that all of a sudden will get out for him. If he played all his games at Yankee stadium, they're saying he would have six home runs Having, if he had played all of McCoffin, it'd be three. So again, it's it's doubling that. But if we look again across other parks, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, like 24 stadiums where you'd have five, six, or seven. So he is not moving again, like Bader, not moving into some great hitters' park for him. He's moving into a park that is fine. Now, I do think those guys will hit more home runs, but because they're line drive hitters, like Yankee stadium has a small outfield. There's actually less grass for the ball to hit there. And so I think it's a little bit of a wash. And so what I'm really doing with those two is warning against getting overly excited about this move for either of them. Ben and by the way, I think will be an interesting one in the off season because he's going to go to Yankee stadium. He is not going to see a big power jump. He might even see a decrease in his, his offense other than runs and RBIs because he's in a better lineup. But he might see his his rates go down, which may hurt his value as people are like, oh, he went to this great stadium and his, his numbers got worse. And then he's going to be a free agent. And he's probably going to go somewhere else. And I think he might be better off somewhere else. So I'm, I'm I'm intrigued by him because I don't think this is a better fit for him, even though that seems to be the natural reaction. What is most interesting to me about this deal, though, these deals, though, is that Harrison Bader is a huge, huge improvement to New York's outfield defense. Um, The Yankees have a couple of decent outfielders. Judge is an 84th percentile outfielder by OAA, outs above average. Aaron Hicks is 77th percentile when he's on the field, but they've been using guys like Miguel Anjahar, Matt Carpenter they've like Stanton has spent time in the outfield. Like they're, they're, they're trying everything they can to find another outfielder. Now, all of a sudden you've got once Bader is back on the field, which hopefully will be soon for this year. And next you've got judge playing a legitimately elite right field instead of his good, but not elite center field. You've got Bader playing elite center field. And when Hicks is healthy, he can be an elite left fielder or, you can play somebody a little bit weaker out there, and it's okay. And then you look at that Yankees rotation. They are, as a team, pretty close to league average in ground ball rate. But Nestor Cortez, Jamison Tyone, Luis Hill all give up more fly balls than the average pitcher. They all have low ground ball rates. They all give up more fly balls. Those guys all stand to benefit pretty significantly. Garrett Cole and Luis Severino are both just a touch above average in ground ball rate. Not, you know, they don't have a Framber Valdez, right? If like, if you had Framber Valdez and he got much better outfield defense, I'm not even sure you would notice or care, but that's not what their rotation is. And so I think that they're really going to benefit from this improved outfield defense. And so for me, the biggest impact of this trade when I'm looking long-term is at least for this year and next, it feels like it's going to be a real positive for a good chunk of that Yankee rotation, particularly Cortez and Tyone.
1: Yeah, I think the, the fielding implications definitely the biggest one. I'm kind of with you that I don't see much of a fantasy shift in terms of value for Ben and and for Bader. I, I understand what you're saying. I think Ben and rates could get worse. The counting numbers will be there though. So like in, in standard five by five value, I'm not noticing a difference. And if you're thinking like, well, Maybe Bader and Benintendi will run more. Benintendi himself, his speed has like disappeared over the last three years. His sprint speed continues to go down. And it's not like they're going from organizations that were not aggressive to an aggressive Yankee organization. Like the Yankees are aggressive on the base paths this year, more so than those two. But marginally, like all three of those organizations, the Royals for Benintendi, St. Louis for Bader and the Yankees, where they're both going or they are now, Um, are all top seven in stolen base attempts this year. So it's not like there's going to be this giant shift. And I was looking it up to see what you're talking about with the fielding. And I wanted to look at St. Louis, uh, particularly their FIP, uh, their fielding independent pitching, because they're an organization that, and they are once again, this year continue to overcome. I, I, for lack of a better term to continue to outperform their fielding independent pitching, because their fielding is so good and we see that with individual cases like Wainwright and other pitchers uh, that have played for the Cardinals probably Michaelis if I had a chance to look where it's like yeah maybe they're lucky but also they just have such good fielding behind them so as the Yankees fielding continues to get better and better particularly with Judge and Wright and Bader and center like you said and Hicks and left who's an above average defender could be um, I wouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden we start looking at Yankees pitchers and to start saying things like oh well they're lucky they're lucky no they're not their FIP looks high, sure, but their fielding, the fielding behind them, is so good that it's going to continue to allow them to outperform their FIP. So that is an interesting observation about the outfield, and I will be a little bit more interested in Yankees pitchers. Still, hate the home park in the division, though.
2: Yeah, and that's the the other player involved in the Bader trade. At least was Jordan Montgomery, who went the other direction. He also has another year of control, and like this is a really nice move for him. Because he's moving to a good defensive team. He is trading a brutal park for power for a great one from the from a pitcher perspective. Right, As we flip the script and look at the pitcher side, this is a huge upgrade in park for him. And he's also swapping out the AL East for the NL Central and looking at all teams in baseball by WOBA. right? So the whole offense by WOBA. The other teams in the AL East, not the Yankees, but the other teams in the AL East are 3rd, 12th, 21st, and 24th in Team WOBA the other teams besides the cardinals in the central are 7th, 14th, 22nd and 28th. Now, you're still seeing like a top 10 team, a top 15 team, a top 25 team. like there's there's some similarities there, but dropping down 3 or 4 spots at every for every opponent is a pretty significant change overall. And so you're you're really improving the outlook for Montgomery by improving his park and improving and, and, and you know, knocking down the level of competition he has to face. I've been a Montgomery fan already. This this gives him a little boost in my book. And I would be, like, I would love to be able to try to buy him now before he starts to make a bunch of starts against weaker opposition and stuff and see if maybe you can buy him at, at his current price before I think the price will go up. Um, but I also think that He's a guy who in the offseason, people will look at his season long line and ignore the fact that he will spend all of next year in a better situation as opposed to just a third of the season.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I obviously much more interest in Montgomery than in Quintana. Although for the rest of this season, I do kind of like both. It's obviously nice for Quintana to get away from the Pirates and now pitch for a team that has not only excellent fielding but you know a chance to actually win some ball games. But in terms of Montgomery, I mean, you brought up the stats for the for the rest of the division. This one I think stinks sticks out to me the most. If you filter on fan graphs for W team WRC plus against left handed pitchers all four of the other teams in the National League Central Division are in the bottom 10, the bottom third. They all have below – so if average is 100, they have below – and I know average is technically not 100, whatever. They have below 100 WRC pluses. The Cubs at 97, the Reds at 96, the Brewers surprisingly all the way down there at 88, and the Pirates with an 83 WRC plus against left-handed pitchers. I mean, that's he's going to feast in that division. So I don't know how many more games they have against the division this season, but next year, absolutely. I would start. I'm, I'm with Chad on this one. Go buy Jordan Montgomery in your long-term leagues. This is a major upgrade in more ways than one.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very excited where I have him, which is unfortunately not enough places looking at St. Louis's schedule the rest of the way. They still have eight with the Cubs, nine with the Pirates, eight with the Reds. And seven with the Brewers. And the Brewers are really the only team in that division who can hit. But apparently not
1: even lefties. So. Yeah. But, so true. Yeah. Cakewalk. Cakewalk. So Montgomery, I think that's a, that's a pretty significant one for this one. Let's stick in the division, Chad. And uh, well, I guess we're not sticking in the division because this player is not. But Tyler Molly, formerly of the National League Central formerly of the Reds is now heading to Minnesota and this one it feels like every analyst has been calling it like look at the home road splits look at the home road splits. sort of like the antithesis to uh Mr. Brandon Drury who everybody thought was going to fall apart outside of Cincinnati I still think he will but hey first pitch Grand Slam not here Mm -hmm. to talk about Drury though Tyler Molly heading to Minnesota what are your thoughts there
2: uh Look at the home road splits. (laughs) There's there's not a lot else to say. I mean, the reality is that Molly, like he has a 5.02 ERA and FIP for his career at home. And it's a 3.74 and 3.52 on the road. And almost all of that comes down to home run per fly ball rate. So, yeah, I mean, for him, in some ways, this is like an ideal landing spot because he is getting out of. That brutal power park and looking at StatCast right now, the StatCast park factors for home runs. Great American Ballpark's home run park factor on StatCast from 2020 through 2022 is 153. (laughs) 153. That is that is first and by a lot. The second highest home run park factor is guaranteed rate field at 125 Dodger Stadium at 124 is third and so on. Target field in Minnesota is 21st at 92. So it's a pretty significant drop in power park factor. And he does that without having to, like, because, like, he could have moved to, I don't know. Let's, I'm just looking at this. Like, San Diego has a relatively similar power park factor to target field. He could have moved there. And it would have been great from a power perspective, but he would have had to deal with the Dodgers. He would have had to deal with pitching at Coors more every year. Minnesota's like, it's a good park for power and, or for for pitchers from a power perspective. And he gets to face the AL Central repeatedly. Like that's a, that's a win for him. That's about as good a landing spot as you could have asked for. I mean, I, I really don't know like what, I'm trying to think of like where I would have rather seen him go. And other than being a Guardians fan, and obviously not a not loving the the Twins, adding a a guy who I think is a legit starter, it's just a, it's just a perfect spot for him.
1: Yep, no question. It's a divisional improvement for Molly. I mean, it, which sounds silly to say because AL Central is so weak, but now Molly gets to go from playing for one of the worst teams in his division to one of the best. Um, the fact that he doesn't have to face the Twins' offense is definitely a good thing. Playing in the AL Central. Um, and, and just obviously, like you said, the ballpark is the biggest difference Chad, I don't know if you had an opportunity to see what Carlos Correa, uh, Molly's new all-star teammate had to say about the acquisition. Did you catch that? No, I missed it. Well, apparently he said something along the lines of like, I don't know much about him, but I saw his stack cast page and he seems pretty good. (laughs) So it sounds like, uh, you know, Carlos Correa could be a pretty good fantasy analyst one day. Maybe we'll
2: invite him on keeper cut and he'll join. Should he be so lucky? Yeah, He, uh, we'll, we'll have to see if he's interested because he's, uh, <laughs> he, he has a history of being sort of analytically minded. Like he looks at advanced stats oh, yeah. and stuff. So it's not a, not a huge surprise. Oh, I, I looked up the quote now. He said, have you, he was asked if he'd ever faced Molly before. And he said, no, but I checked his baseball savant and there's a lot of red in there. That's a, that's a great quote. <laughs> That is a great quote. I can't tell you how many times I've been like, what made you pick that guy up in a fantasy league? Like, oh, Savant page had a lot of red.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's a line here all the time. So thank you for being a man of the people, Carlos Correa, and good luck to your new teammate, Tyler Molly. I do think in terms of like how much they could improve that Montgomery could improve even more than Molly. Um, But I am more excited about Molly and will have Molly higher in my rankings going into next year, as I'm sure most people would. But don't underestimate Jordan Montgomery heading to the NL Central. Uh, Chad, let's stay on the Reds. Um, There was a player that I wanted to talk about. Briefly, because he's he's at the moment incredibly insignificant in the game of fantasy baseball, but he does have an opportunity now that Brandon Drury has packed his bags and moved to San Diego, and that is Jose Barrero, formerly Jose Garcia. Um, sneaky power source. He hits a ton of balls in the air, and I think that's going to play obviously well at Great American Ballpark, as we just saw with Tyler Molly. It's terrible for him because he's a pitcher that so many balls get hit in the air, but for a hitter, you could imagine it. You don't have to imagine. It is a good thing. The thing is, his K rate is absolutely out of control. If you could get the K rate somewhat under control and, and stay in the field, he could be a decent power source and actually had 60 grade speed as a prospect. Um, he has a good glove. I think all of these things lefty should keep him in the lineup. I'm sorry. Is, is he a lefty? I might have just got that wrong. I have to look that up. But you got that wrong. He, he's right handed. He i a I mix him up with a guy a we're going to talk about later, Mike Massey. <laughs> but um, any quick thoughts on, on Jose Barrero? Just interesting now that he's he's got a job.
2: Yeah, you know, I was interested in him coming into the season before he got hurt. So if you remember back at the beginning of the year, he was a... a, a I, I wouldn't say like a fantasy darling, because that's not the right word. But he was a very interesting sleeper, late-round, deep-league kind of guy. And, and a lot of that was based on his triple a performance last year where you know, he's got a reputation as a a free swinger let's say a, a much deserved reputation as a free swinger at that triple a last year though he kept his strikeout rate down to 22 percent. it had been at uh 22.2 the year before in double a or that same year in double a after being much higher in a brief mlb stint in 2020 so Bringing that down, showing some real progress there—really good sign. I I was very intrigued by what he could bring. Then he got hurt. Then he went to AAA, and like I'm glad he's getting a shot because I think he's, you know, he's 24 and he's he's shown in the past that he could be ready. Like he certainly seemed ready when this year started. He got 237 AAA plate appearances this year after coming back from injury, and he was awful. Like legit bad, he had a 4.6 percent walk rate and a 37.6 percent strikeout rate. His home run per fly ball rate was 15.8 percent, which helped a little bit and got him up to nine home runs. But even with that, he had a 282 WOBA, which you know it's hard. It's always hard to know like how does a WOBA transit? Blah blah. blah. That's a 66 WRC plus for his league. That is Oof. way below average, and. So I like I said, I was excited about him before the season. I'm now I wouldn't say I've like completely cooled on him, but had he had he not gotten hurt, started the year playing well in AAA, I would have been all over him. I would have been stashing him on out of new teams. I would have been clamoring for clamoring for him to get called up. And instead, based on how he's performed so far, I'm I'm just I'm pretty. Nervous, and and I'm in more of a sort of a wait and see mode to to just sort of see does he start to make improvements? Does it translate? Like, because I mean, you know, you can you can even look at like oh maybe at the last like month or so, right? So his last AAA game was August second. If we go back to July third, his final month in AAA, he had technically brought his strikeout rate down from 37.6 percent; it was 33.7 percent he also had his walk rate go down to 2.2%. so all he did in his last month was just start swinging at even more stuff and probably making a little bit more contact. I, you know, his last like his last couple weeks he kind of got the strikeout rate down again maybe, but even that is you're really getting into a small sample size. Like his last four games, his strikeout rate was under 30%, but his last five games, it was over 36%. So like, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little concerned based on what I see in his profile. And again, this is not me as a scout. This is me as just a guy looking at his numbers that he is going to get eaten alive by major league pitching. And, you know, it's only one game so far. He has only had three plate appearances. He has a 75% O swing, a hundred percent Z swing in those three plate appearances so far. That isn't really making me feel better about his ability to like be patient, take a pitch. Like, I don't know. I I'm, I don't see any evidence that he's got like elite contact ability, which is the the skill you're looking for from a guy who swings that much. Like if you're going to swing at everything, you better make a ton of contact. I don't see the evidence he does that. I I'm I've cooled pretty heavily based on the 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 steps back he's taken this year.
1: Yeah, no question the the bottom line: If the strikeout rate does not go down, then he's going to be useless. You you can't be striking out thirty percent of the time at AAA. Go to the major leagues. Expect that to get better. Continuing to do what you're doing. The one thing I will say: some context on that injury, and and like things like O swing that that shouldn't be impacted by injury. So I'm not trying to cut him too much slack here. But it was a broken hamate bone. That needed surgery, and his wrist and his hand, wherever the heck the hamate bone is. But we know that that can that can zap a lot of power, and that obviously affects hitters in a lot of different ways. It's what we were worried that uh, Jordan Alvarez had earlier this year, and that would have been awful. But Barrero, you know, y- you brought up the success he had at AAA last season, and the number one thing that sticks out to me about that success um, at AAA in 2021 was a 51. Nope, that's his major league a 47.2% fly ball rate. That is a crazy fly ball rate. And if that fly ball rate makes its way to great American ballpark, something could be brewing there. I mean, we could be talking about like, you know, Eugenio Suarez who would hit 230, but, you know, club 40 homers. I don't know if he ever did those two things in the same year, but you get the profile that I'm kind of getting at here with an element of speed. But you're right. If those strikeouts don't go down, if he doesn't find any sense of the strike zone, then forget about it. He's irrelevant.
2: Yeah. And that fly ball rate, like if it's carrying that fly ball rate is great if he hits the ball hard enough. And like, I'm not sure. And he could. Maybe he does. But like, it's not like he's a guy who has put up huge home run totals. Right. He he had 19 across three levels last year. It was in. Let's look at this. It was in 436 plate appearances. So, you know, he 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 showed decent power the grades on his power, at least at fan graphs, he's got a 55 current 60 future value on his raw power, but his game power is only a 40 and a 50. So like that, that fly ball rate is great. If you're hitting the ball hard enough. And I I just worry that he's going to hit a lot of fly ball outs, which are going to, which will despite his speed suppress his BAPIT and great American ballpark will help, but I'm just not, I'm not sure it'll help enough. So the talent is real. I, I'm I am intrigued, but I have I have cooled on him considerably because he seems to have taken such a big step backwards this year.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. And and the poll percentage for what it's worth when he was hitting all those fly balls was below league average, which if you're not going to be hitting the ball hard is definitely not what you want to see. So let's let's move on from Barrero. I hope he becomes fantasy relevant, but I don't know if he will. I mean, Chad, the elephant in the room before we take a break, and I want to do it before we take a break to kind of be under the pressure of being quick as Juan Soto is now in San Diego for the next two and a half years. Thoughts on Juan Soto, one of the best players in baseball, going to a new place.
2: Yeah, I mean, at least he's going to have other hitters around him, so that should help with his runs and RBI. But other than that, like, we talked about this last episode. You could put him anywhere. It wouldn't matter. I, I'm excited because I think that team is just going to be incredibly fun to watch, especially when they get uh, Tatis back. Um, I also very selfishly in almost exactly a month, my son and I are taking a trip to LA and one of the games, we're going to go see two games. We're going to go see the angels play. I think they're playing Houston, but the other game we're gonna go see that weekend is Dodgers Padres. And I'm just already like, not only not only there's going to be like two fun teams playing but if you think about like being able to go to one place like talk about like the excitement of the all-star game because you can see the best players in baseball but like Manny Machado, Juan Soto, Tatis should be back, Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts, Trey Turner, who knows who's going to be pitching that game. Josh Hader like you're going to have one of the best closers in the game on one side like it's just yeah it's super fun. I'm very jealous of people who live in Southern California and on a nightly basis could be like, I could drive to a Padres game. I could go watch Otani and Trout. I could go to a Dodgers game. Like, that's just it's just an embarrassment of riches in the baseball world in Southern California. And, and lost in that, you're also probably seeing the Astros, you said. I mean, jeez. That's
1: so much talent that you guys are going to be seeing in those couple of days. So that is going to be awesome. But yeah, ditto. I have nothing to add on Juan Soto, one of the best players in the game, no matter where he's playing, wish it was in Boston. With that said, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Keep or Cut podcast with me, Pete Ball, joined as always by Chad Young. Today, we're breaking down a lot of pretty much all of, I don't know, we'll probably miss some of the trades that took place in the wacky trade deadline uh, of last week. Chad and I are obviously looking long term. We're looking at maybe some of the players like Jose Barrero, who we just spent a solid five minutes on, uh, who may be on the fringes, certainly available in your leagues and could have some value, not only for the remainder of 2022, but going forward. The last name that we talked about was Juan Soto, who is not available in any of your leagues, but I'm willing to bet that this next guy who maybe needed a change of scenery more than anybody in the history of planet Earth, maybe he is going to recoup some fantasy value. Chad, your thoughts on Joey
2: Gallo, who I saw you put down in the notes. Yeah, I I am not I honestly I'm not sure what to think of Joey Gallo at this point I think it's it's I'm a huge fan of his I'm a big fan of guys with good plate discipline I know he strikes out a lot but he's a he's like a patient hitter. he's a selective hitter I love that power he's fun to watch at this point for me I have no I don't have any insight to suggest that like oh LA is gonna be a better fit for him because like from a park perspective, first of all, Dodger stadium is a better power park than you think. Like it is. I I think people underrate the fact that, you know, I was reading those home run park factors before. And I mentioned that the number one park factor for home run is great American ballpark, but I got, I went, I read the top three and Dodger stadium is third. The park factor for home runs at Dodger stadium is better than the park factor for home runs at Yankee stadium. So now there's still the short porch and left at Yankee stadium and park factors are not perfect blah, blah, blah. But like, this isn't a big hit for him in terms of stadium change. And it's very, very clear from the quotes. And if you haven't read the quotes from him last week, like it's very clear that his life in New York was not pleasant. That like he was talking about how he like, he didn't feel like he could leave his apartment. Like it just, it just was a bad situation. That's gone. Now he's going to a very different team. He's coming in with a very different set of expectations. And on top of that, like, not that the Yankees are a, a bad organization by any means, but my goodness, do the Dodgers have a strong track record of just fixing guys or discovering players or unlocking something with players. Like they just seem to do it repeatedly. And so I'm I'm really intrigued. The biggest thing for me with Gallo when I think about his long term value, think about him as a keeper in Dynasty League, stuff like that, is he has to turn things around now. Because if he doesn't, if the rest of this season is still bad, I don't know what optimism I can find to buy on him next year or to keep him for next year. If he has a good end of the season, I'm very quickly going to be all in and like, yes, he's going to go back to being the guy he was. This is fantastic. But if not, I I don't know where you find the optimism for him again if, if getting out of New York doesn't help him get his head right.
1: Yeah, the good thing is, is for a guy who needed a change of scenery, not only did he get one, but he's going to be able to pick his change of scenery for next year because he is an unrestricted free agent at the end of the season. So if the Dodgers can, if this perfect scenario takes place where the Dodgers get him right, and now he gets to pick where he wants to go, um, he could certainly all of a sudden return to fantasy relevancy pretty quickly. I do find it funny that maybe two of two of the biggest hitter busts from fantasy this year, Max Muncie and Joey Gallo are now on the same team. And that team is probably still going to like go to the world series, which has no fantasy relevance, but I thought was pretty interesting. Either way, it looks like Gallo is going to be in a little bit of a, Struggle for play time. It helps that he hits from the left side, but with the emergence of Miguel Vargas, who had a great debut going two for four or two for five with a stolen base, he had an awesome quote after the stolen base, which was basically like, I felt invincible. So I took third base. That's my kind of player. Um, Gallo is going to have to hold guys like that off um, in order to get himself right and get the play time he needs to get himself right. But Joey Gallo, definitely interesting. Somebody worth not forgetting about, particularly in points formats where those walks matter. Um, continuing to kind of churn through them here, I want to turn our attention to a a keeper cut darling, somebody who has uh come up all the time, really on just our podcast and maybe nowhere else, and that's JD Davis, because Chad, JD Davis, even though it's San Francisco, which is a little bit of a bummer, basically has a full time job now in San Francisco with Evan
2: Longoria out with the strained hamstring. So JD, are you back in? Yeah, actually I was just looking at my Auto New Leagues to see where he's rostered. And uh we may we maybe need to have some trade talks cuz I need a third baseman in that Fangraph Staff league and you've got Davis. And I'm uh yeah, I'm back in. I mean, I I think yes, San Francisco's a little bit of a bummer. Uh the the real the, the biggest concern I have is that like Longoria shouldn't be out forever and when he comes back I don't know what they do with Davis. Like, I don't know what, like how did, how do those two share time? However, San Francisco, we talked about this a moment ago with Gallo going to the Dodgers, San Francisco, even more than the Dodgers has been incredible at unlocking veteran talent, right? They, they somehow or another helped Longoria rebuild himself into value. They've unlocked stuff with guys like Darren Ruff, who got traded for JD Davis. Uh, They've, they just seem to repeatedly be able to help players get the most out of their talent. And they've done that by investing in coaches. I don't know if it's still true, but like a year or two ago, they had like far and away the largest coaching staff of any team. And I don't know if that's still true, but it doesn't even matter if it's still true. The point is that they have really invested in coaching. And so all of this, like, oh, they fixed this guy. They got more out of this guy. This guy's had his best years now that he's there. And like they've done it a ton with pitchers. You look at Descalfani and how much more they're getting out of Cobb and goes on and on and on. But it's not just that they've gotten lucky. It's not just picking the right guys. Like they have invested in coaching and developing veteran players. And Davis is just a prime example of a guy who just feels like there's more to unlock in his game than what he's unlocked so far. And I love this. I I think this is a perfect landing spot for him. Like, I, I don't know Yes, there are other places he could have gone where there'd be less playing time concern. Yes, there are better hitters parks he could have landed in. But I will take gladly take those trade-offs to get him with that coaching staff. I'm all in. Yeah, it's it's such a great point. I mean,
1: look at the players on that team and 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 you brought up um oh, who who did you bring up for the
2: veteran Darren Ruff and there was there was Darren Ruff, of- Long- uh, Longoria who who had you know a resurgent time there. For sure.
1: Right. And think about some of the other guys who had their best offensive seasons after the age of 30. J.D. Davis still just 29. I put down three in the notes. Brandon Crawford last year was probably his best offensive season ever, if memory serves me correctly. And Yastrzemski and Brandon Belt as well. So I, I agree. The coaching fit is a nice fit. Um, And just the, the fact that this dude has an average exit velocity of 93.1 is that's a that is a that is a ridiculous average exit velocity. Like that's stupid. That's that's less than two miles an hour away from just averaging a hard hit ball. That's crazy. So like, th- there's potential here, and it's why Chad for a long time kept bringing up, and then all of a sudden I started echoing him and bringing him
2: up because there is a lot of impact in that bat. So he's and someone he's who there. I assuming they don't make another move, he's there two more years, right? And. You know the. I'm looking at uh, Longoria, who turns turns 36, has turned 36. He almost he's almost 37. Is Longoria has been hurt on and off. He has a 13 million dollar, I believe, team option for next year, and that comes with a five million dollar buyout. But if I'm the Giants, I assume if I'm looking at the Giants, I assume part of this trade was that Davis can be there for the next couple of years and now they can opt out of longoria and so i'm you know i'm looking for improvement in davis's game immediately i would trade for him right now but i'm very intrigued to see what does it look like when he gets two months of of hopefully close to full time playing time which he's never really consistently gotten then gets a full off season of whatever it is the Giants tell him to do and work with him on and then goes through spring training with them and then comes in as the presumptive starting third baseman, which isn't a given, but I think is likely like I I'm, I'm very excited about the future here. And I I'm to me, there's an opportunity to buy in on Davis before he takes off. Yeah. But Pete, yep. and, forget and- that I just said all that and then trade him to me. <laughs> that's honestly he's absolutely on my trade block i
1: i hope i have third base plugged up for a while in that league i actually know i don't i have a wicked expensive alex bregman i don't know we can definitely chat um but another name just involved in that mix right now the everyday dh it looks like for the giants at least according to roster resources tommy listella and so i'd say their dh role is not you know pinned down so i, I think there's a worst case scenario where we still end up with plenty of jd davis playing time it, whatever the case much better location um, let's shift our attention. I like the idea of going back and forth between guys who are absolutely on the periphery, really only deep leagues. Maybe you throw a buck at them and you're out in new leagues. Two much more relevant players. And one that we can't ignore is Trey Mancini heading to Houston, uh, where in his first at bat as an Astro, he hit a, a it went 377 feet, but I believe it would not have been out at Camden with their ridiculous right. defense. And it it looked like a pop fly. It was a home run into the Crawford boxes. Um, so Trey Mancini in Houston.
2: Is there anything to add other than it's just a great fit? It's definitely a great fit. I think that there's a couple of a couple of pieces of caution I would put out there. So one is after coming in, getting that first game, hitting a home run, he was out of the lineup the next day, and he was not just out of the lineup, but they had Yuli Gurriel, who in theory he should be upgrading and replacing. They had Yuli Gurriel in the lineup and hitting second, which tells me that they don't. (laughs) Well, it could just be dusty, I guess, but it tells me that they don't think Gurriel's done, which means that Gurriel and Mancini and Jordan Alvarez and maybe like guys like Brantley, Oledmiz Diaz, like they're going to be sharing first base, left field and DH among a bunch of guys. Right. None of those guys can play center field. So center field's got to be locked down by guys who can play center field. Kyle Tucker locked in at right field. Left field when Brantley's healthy should be him. But you know, he's on and off healthy. And Jordan Alvarez has been on and off healthy. And you've got, I don't know. It just it feels like there's just a lot of moving parts there. And it is not clear to me. I guess I'll say this. I don't think Mancini has a full-time job because I don't know that any of those guys other than Alvarez really has a full-time job. And I think Alvarez will get some days off here and there, which will help. But like, I it's, it's not clear to me if, if Mancini is going to be 75 to 90% or like 50 to 60% of the playing time. And so I would caution a little bit about that. The other caution for him in keeper leagues is he is a free agent at the end of the year. He, speaks very highly of his time in Baltimore. Now, I don't know that that means he's definitely going to go back, but they should be looking to buy this offseason and he would be a logical player for them to try to bring back. And even if he isn't there, Houston has shown a tendency to let guys walk, including guys who are much more deeply tied to the organization and, and frankly, better players than Mancini. Not that Mancini's not a good player, but like they let George Springer walk. They let Carlos Correa walk. Like I, so I, I think right now, the rest of this year, yes. Take advantage of those Crawford boxes. Pay attention at least in the next week or so to how often he plays, because it you may need to adjust your expectations for him based on that. But don't get caught up. Like if he hits a bunch of balls into the Crawford boxes, don't get caught up in that being a, you know, a breakout, a change in his value. Cause like we don't know where he'll be next year. And I would bet against it being Houston. And no place is a better fit for him
1: other than maybe the Reds, who will not be buying Trey Mancini than Houston with those Crawford boxes. I guess the one piece of news I'll add to it that will maybe make you feel a little bit better about your rest of season Trey Mancini value is that Michael Brantley hasn't swung a bat since he landed on the IL and he's still having shoulder discomfort. He said himself he doesn't want to put a timetable on it, so... I think acquiring Mancini, part of that may have been, we don't feel good about where Michael Brantley's at, so hopefully they're not competing. But like Chad said, there's still plenty of names there competing for that the, the spots that Mancini could occupy in that lineup. If it is still 75% to 90% of the time he's in the lineup, then he's absolutely worth rostering. And in your weekly leagues, I'm still deploying him, especially when he's at home. If it's more like 50 to 60%, I would be surprised, but that certainly impacts his value. Um, Chad, I wanted to talk about a prospect, which isn't commonplace for us too much, but he's a guy who I expect to break his way into the major leagues pretty soon because of this most recent trade. That's Ken Waldachuk, who's going from the Yankees organization to Oakland. So he's going from like the best or second best organization in baseball to maybe the worst, Um, endless opportunities to just take a rotation spot and run with it. And although lately he's kind of struggled, so he dominated double A this year. He's he then got called up to triple A and did not skip a beat. But he has hit a little bit of a snag in July. Despite that, though, 21 strikeouts to seven walks in July. And that's 21 strikeouts in just 13.1 innings pitched. This dude has crazy strikeout upside. He's posting strikeout numbers that kind of remind me of like when Christian Javier was coming up through Houston's minor league system. He was posting crazy strikeout numbers as well. That's what this kind of looks like. And not only all of that, Oakland is a terrific, terrific The Coliseum is an excellent ballpark to pitch in. So you kind of factor all that together, and I'm I'm getting pretty excited about Ken Waldechuk. Now, they might move. Oakland could end up in Vegas, and who knows what that ballpark would look like. So hold your breath a little bit on how great of a ballpark he's going to be in, Um, at least for the long term, for the short term, for this year and probably next year as well. He should be pitching in a pretty good ballpark. Are you excited about Ken Waldechuk? Are you throwing any dollars around? What's the deal there? Because uh, I think he's going to be called up pretty soon.
2: I'm... I'm less confident he'll be called up soon. I mean, he's made, let's look at this. He he hasn't made that many AAA starts. He's made 11 AAA starts. As you noted, the last three starts he made for the Yankees, for the Yankees organization, right, in AAA, he went th- three starts, a total of 8.1 innings. So less than three innings per start. He only went 3.2 in one of them. The other two were both under three innings. In those eight point one innings, eight earned runs, three home runs allowed, fifteen strikeouts in eight point one innings is great, but six walks. And part of that fifteen strikeouts was he gave up ten hits. Like you give up that many hits and walks, you you got you guys got to get out somehow. Like so, I actually look at this and like, I think he's got to reprove himself a little bit, and not like reprove himself like spend a full season in the minors, but he's going to go to Oakland. Their coaches and development. People are going to want to look at him. They I'm sure they traded for him with some ideas of stuff. They wanted him to focus on. He's going to need to adjust to that organization and what, and what they want from him and bounce back from what's been a, a pretty awful last three starts. And it's only three starts. And I don't want to like, you know, you can't make too much out of just three starts, but they were, they were bad. and like, before you assume, like, oh, he was getting BAPIP to death, which he was. It was a 438 BAPIP. He had a 671 FIP over those three starts. Like, he's been legitimately bad. He's walking everybody. He's been extremely homer prone. So, like, let's just... I don't know. Let's just take a deep breath on the Ken Wall to Chuck hype. Because I don't think he's coming up soon. I think he's got a good month left in AAA. And then... We'll see, like at that point, you know, looking at his innings count on the year. I mean, he's at, ah, hold on. I lost it. Here we go. Like last year, he got up to 109, 110 innings, basically this year, he's already at about 78. If he makes a few more starts, he's going to almost have to get stretched out since he's only gone two to three innings his last three times out if he throws another four or five starts and gets up to five six innings again he's going to start to push a point where he's matching his innings totals from last year at which point i don't know if you're Oakland like maybe you give him a cup of coffee cuz maybe you want to see him for a couple starts give him that experience blah 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 but like they got nothing to play for this year i don't know why they would rush him and so i think from a from a service time perspective from a development perspective from the organization wanting to impart their own notes and thoughts on him i i'm not expecting much from him this year at all so in terms of expecting much i think that's that's fair i would be,
1: i would be surprised if we don't see him in oakland by the end of the season part of that is I, I'm not going to say organizational pressure because clearly that organization does not feel any kind of pressure to do anything ever. And you're right; they don't have a, a reason to quote rush him. Although I think you make the case uh, pretty soon, he's it's not going to be rushed. It's just going to be time. He is 24 years old, but like, look at look at Oakland's rotation right now. Not that it matters. I get it; they're they're in contention probably for the number one overall pick. And but right now, Cole Irvin, James Caprellian, Paul Blackburn, and Adam Aller, uh, and that's it. That's it, at least on on roster resource. Maybe J.P. Sears gets a look before he does. He's got two years on Waldachuk. J.P. Sears is one of the other more significant names moved in this. I think it was four-player deal from the Yankees to Oakland. But Sears has pretty much exclusively come out of the bullpen this year. So I don't know if they would feel more comfortable deploying him into that rotation. So you're right. The innings, especially lately in July for Waldachuk, have been a little bit concerning. I'd still... If I'm out of it, I'm I'm thinking really along the lines of new with a lot of these names I'm throwing out there. If I'm out of contention right now, I'm throwing a buck at Waldachuk. I'm throwing a buck at Barrero. I'm throwing a buck at J.D. Davis, and I'm seeing what sticks. And I I think you will at least find out something about Waldachuk in your dollar you spent on him before the end of the season, as opposed to absolutely nothing.
2: Yeah. I, I, I have no issue. Like while Chuck being rostered in out makes sense to me, like in a 40 man roster, having him as one of your, you know, one to two to th- maybe $3 guys. Fine. I totally get that. But to me, it's a, it's a 2023 play. It's not a, like, maybe he'll be up soon and I'll get some, like, I just, that's not what I'm expecting from him. I could be wrong, but it's not what I'm expecting. Whereas like Barrero is up and is going to like, he should play every day the rest of the season, unless he really is overmatched, which I suppose could happen. And they like they may get have their hand forced to send him down, but otherwise he'll be up. And and, and Davis, who I think I think can contribute, I, I don't I don't think you're wrong to think he's like a one to three four dollar guy. But I but he at least I you know I'm expecting him to contribute this year, even if it's not at a particularly high level.
1: Davis without question of these names has the safest floor. I think that I, I don't know if I'd call his floor safe, but he has a floor. Whereas I don't know if Walt Chuck, especially Walt right. Cause he's still in the minors or Barrera. I mean, his floors is, is beneath the floor. Um, so yeah, I, I, I consider Davis the most of those three. Chad, we had a lot of closers move. Um, Jorge Lopez, who it made a lot of sense for Baltimore to trade him. And they did, and they did pretty well in that trade. Apparently. Um, Moved to Minnesota. Uh, we've got Rogers now heading to Milwaukee, where it looks like I I'd guess Devin Williams takes the job and and, and Rogers. I, I don't know. He's now a lefty out of the pen. Um, Hader now going to the Padres, of course. And I think the most significant one that we were talking about it before the show might be Rezo Glacius to the Braves. Um, I don't know if there's a whole lot to be said for two of those names, Lopez and Hater, because I think they still have jobs. Maybe their jobs are even better now. Um, I mean, Hater not really because he was already playing for a good team. Certainly, Lopez. Um, what are you doing with Rogers and Iglesias? Rogers, who had lost his job even before
2: this trade took place. Yeah, I mean, quickly on Hater, like I think it's it's an upgrade in team for Hater, except for the fact that the Padres may win games by an average of like seventy-three runs <laughs> moving forward. But it's a, I mean, I think it's a slight upgrade for him, but it doesn't really change him much. Rodgers and Lopez and Iglesias are all way more interesting. Uh, I have Rodgers on my my CBS team, my CBS head to head that I've talked about on here before. I am totally flummoxed right now because the the Brewers have good reason to want to keep uh, keep Devin Williams in the role he's in. Then they've had two games since Rogers came over in the first one. Williams came on in a tie game in the ninth after Rogers had already pitched and Williams gave up a walk-off home run to Brian Reynolds in the next game. Williams again came on in a tie game in the ninth inning and Rogers didn't pitch at all. And so now like, if there's a save opportunity for them tonight and we're recording for those listening, we're recording this on Friday, August 5th. So by the time you listen to this, some of this will be outdated and we may know more, but if they have a a game tonight where they need a save, I would imagine Rogers gets the save shot because Williams will have gone two nights in a row and Rogers hasn't. And so I, I don't know. I, I, you know, if I look at it from a purely strategic standpoint, uh, like if I were the manager of the Brewers, being able to deploy Williams where and when I want to deploy him instead of making him my quote-unquote closer is how I would want to use him. From a cheap owner standpoint, which Milwaukee certainly has, you can keep arbitration figures down for Williams by avoiding saves. So, like, there are reasons to keep him out of the closer's job. So, I I don't really know what exactly to expect. I am super torn because I... like. I had Rodgers for $9 in this league, which is a really good price. Like I traded in this league to get Emmanuel Classe and Josh Hader earlier this year. They are $24 and $29. It's so, like at $9, like I was very happy with Rodgers and now it's like I don't know if he's a cut. I don't know if he's a long-term keeper cuz like if he is a closer, he's a keeper at that price. Like I I don't know what to make of him. So I I'm waiting though for more information. I haven't made any drastic moves with Rodgers. I floated him in some trade talks where I was maybe going to pick up a a more established closer, but like, I think it's sort of a wait and see how they're going to use that pen. My guess is it's Williams, at least for now, but I don't know. I mean, if, if, like I said, if there's a save tonight and Rogers gets it and gets it and does it well, you know, sometimes that's enough to get a guy running with the job. As for the other two, like this is a great landing spot for Jorge Lopez because he easily could have gone to a team that just needed bullpen depth and didn't need a closer, right? You look like Toronto is adding bullpen depth. If he gets traded to Toronto, he's not a closer and he's not going to be a closer. It's like, if you have Jorge Lopez, you should be happy. If you have him as a, in a keeper league, his keeper value has probably gone up because he's now still a closer and he's now a closer for a team that is unlikely to trade him away, which means he's likely to stay a closer. It's like, that's a good place to be with him. And Iglesias, I mean, Iglesias is an interesting one because he becomes a really interesting buy for a team that's out of contention right now because he will not be the closer in Atlanta. He'll be second in line. And Kenley Jansen, he's had those heart issues again and, you know, injuries happen. He'll need days off. Iglesias will pick up some saves, but he will not be the closer there. But Jansen will be gone after the season Iglesias is there for three more years. I think we said like, I think he's going to be their closer next year and he'll be a closer on a good team next year. So his, in terms of keeper value, like if you're in a redraft league, Iglesias, this is a huge hit to his value. He was a closer. Now he's not big drop in value in five by five in terms of redraft or in terms of keeper leagues or dynasty leagues, his long-term value has increased because he's going to be closing for a better team starting next season. So if I'm out of it and I need closers and there's a well-priced Iglesias in my league, I'd be floating offers for him. So I wanted to ask, it, it, it is such an interesting case. And you
1: said well-priced Iglesias. Right now, Razor Iglesias on in, in all Otnew New Leagues has an average of about 15 bucks. In head-to-head graph, fan graph points, it's 13. Now I imagine in head-to-head points, in your mind, he's still a hold. And he's still worth trading for because he's going to get holds instead of saves now, yeah. most likely, which is worth just as much. But if you're in like, let's say, an odd new five by five, are you at that price? Are you trading for Iglesias? Are you that confident next year? He's going to be what, the closer what was the price 50. He's $14 and 80 cents. So he's about a $15. Even if he's 14. We're looking at at least 16 bucks next year. 17 bucks next year. Is he still because historically he's been awesome. Is that worth trading for? Are you that confident he's going to be the closer next year in Atlanta? Because
2: I, I kind of am. But is it worth it at that price? I think I'd be looking, I'd be looking to trade him away if I had him and was contending. If I were building towards next year, I think what I'd be trying to do is something like. A like $30 overpriced closer on my roster for your Iglesias and a prospect. And, and I, I think if, you know, if Atlanta came out and said, not that any team would ever do this, but if Atlanta came out and said, yep, Kenley's gone at the end of the year, Rizal is our closer for 2023 and beyond, then I'd be looking at just a, a one for one. Here's my overpriced closer for Iglesias. Let's just, you get the closer for this year, I get the closer for next year, we're all happy. I think I need a little bit more than that because there's risk involved. Because if you know, let's say they make this you know, everything goes down the way we think, they start heading towards spring training next year and Atlanta brings back Jansen or Atlanta trades for Josh Hader because for some reason San Diego trades him or they they do I don't know. Something else happens and it becomes apparent that Iglesias is not going to be the closer. I'm not keeping him next year at $16 unless he's the closer. I think it's the most likely outcome. And so I, I'm willing to take that risk, but I need a little something else, a, a prospect or something to just buy off some of that risk.
1: That makes total sense. I, I think he's a, he's one, he's gotta be to me, one of the more interesting players, not new right now uh, for that reason, because it's kind of like your, your $8 Rogers. Like it's like, Man, there's, there's two ways this can go, and they're very different ways. But you're right. You, you need something to help mitigate that risk a little bit. Chad, we have two more players that I want to talk about. One is super relevant, super important. The other is Michael Massey of the Kansas City Royals. Um, and that's not me firing shots at Michael Massey of the Kansas City Royals, but with the movement of Whit Merrifield uh, to Toronto, who is apparently vaccinated now. Uh, Michael Massey becomes a little interesting to me. I don't know, 346 at bats across double A AA and triple A this year. So lots of big sample to work with this season. 16 homers, 13 stolen bases, just two caught stealing. And he's hitting 312. And by the way, sometimes that raises my eyebrows a little bit when I hear across double A AA and triple A, because one could be extreme. Well, and they both could be extreme. He's been pretty consistently good across both levels. Um, and, and now all of a sudden he gets called up. And he's he's gotten some hits in his first couple of games. He did get a cup of coffee earlier in the season. But most importantly, since he's been called up since the trade deadline, he started both games. Um, And it looks like he could be the everyday second baseman with Nicky Lopez moving to shortstop or staying at shortstop. I don't know how their infield shook out. It's like they have 15 shortstops and they all just play different positions. Anyway, um, Michael Massey, assuming he's an everyday player, I find really interesting, especially in rotisserie leagues where speed is so hard to come by anything on Massey chat? Are you with me?
2: There going to push back. What do you think on Michael Massey? Yeah. I mean, scouting reports on him were like, you know, he sounds like a utility guy, like the, the, the big side of a bench bat platoon. Right. So not, not even a big side of a platoon, like starting, but like, you know, you get a, you get a left-handed bat on your bench. You get a right-handed bat on your bench. He's the left-handed bat bench bat that you, you pull out every once in a while. And so in, that that immediately like long term it gives me pause because i don't think he is like i don't think he's their starting second baseman next year and so from a keeper league perspective i'm i'm sort of meh on him i do think there's a good chance he plays the position like every day the rest of the year And hits five home runs and steals five bases or something like that. And, like, that has some value, especially in deeper leagues, AL only leagues, things like that. If he does take off, then maybe he is their long-term answer. Not long-term. Semi-long-term answer at second base. I just... I don't know. I just don't... I don't see that. I don't see him as the future. And so, like, I'm not out there... Getting excited about him as a keeper, I I'm intrigued by what he might be able to bring me down the stretch, but I don't know. On the other hand, like you look at that organization, and I'm looking at on, at their Fangraphs top prospect list. There are 47 prospects that they list because Fangraphs goes forever. Here are, the, here are the middle infielders. Their number one prospect going into the season, and this is the date on this article is in May, May 27th. Bobby Witt Jr. is a shortstop. He's now at third base. Fine. Michael Garcia, who just got sent down when Massey came up, is a shortstop. Massey is a second baseman. And then you have to go down to number 29 to get to Daniel Vasquez, who's a shortstop. He's an A-ball. Then you get a second baseman and Ivan Castillo, who's the 41st best prospect another guy in a ball Omar Florentino is 43rd like they don't have a ton of middle infield options so I I suppose there is a world in which the Royals go into next season and if Massey's been decent they don't really have anyone else like I don't know I don't know who else plays that role for them if it's not him but I just can't see them sticking with him so I don't know it's a little weird Samad Taylor who they picked up in the Merrifield trade has played some second base so maybe he's an option I I just I don't know they they need to they have a lot of holes they need to fill and Massey could fill one short term but I think it's short term is what it comes down to yeah I think that's that's fair Uh, the, the utility comp and
1: and whatnot I mean he's a fourth round pick he's never been a guy with a lot of hype I bring him up specifically for Roto format. So if you're if you're talking about a, a points format, I don't have a lot of interest in Massey. He's not somebody who projects to walk that much. As a matter of fact, in his limited time in the major leagues, he still has not taken a walk. So that's, I guess, worth keeping an eye on. However, it does kind of, and I'm not saying he's Whit Merrifield, but it's the same organization. And Whit Merrifield kind of came up in a similar way where it was like, it looks like a utility type, not going to take a lot of walks, but can can play multiple places, kind of hits for maybe a, an ounce of power, but does have a little bit of speed. Um, and and the Royals clearly like those kinds of guys because they run a ton. So it's really a in the short term, if you need speed, I mean, I'm adding Michael Massey now, like if I if I have room to gain in the standings in a Roto League and stolen bases, he has the everyday job on a team that loves to run and he's fast. So it's a no brainer. If it looks like next going into next year, they're going to roll with him. He has he has a starting job. I think he's going to be a late round target for me or somebody else dash for a buck just because. Again, speed is rare, um, and Massey has it. And not only does he have speed, but he's not, you know, he's not Billy Hamilton. This dude has hit 16 homers this year. That's not nothing. Um, So uh, to me, a guy worth keeping an eye on could be a little bit of a late late bloomer here. Um, And that brings us to a much more significant name. Um, I don't, this one could be kind of interesting, Chad, and Frankie Montas, because obviously not a great place for pitchers. Not a great division for pitchers, leaving a great place for pitchers, but the win potential is going to be there. We talked about the fielding earlier in the show. Frankie Montas in New York, the shoulder apparently looks fine. What are
2: your thoughts there? I hate it. <laughs> when we, we, the funny thing is, when we when we did our our deadline preview show, we talked about. Mont, one of my suggestions was getting Montas to Seattle. Cause it would be such a good landing spot for him. And Castillo ended up there and it's a great landing spot for him. And I like, sure. I'm, I'm very happy. Like if I, for with Castillo, I mean, I think part of the reason we haven't talked about Castillo is because like, what is there to say? He got out of a terrible park. He's in a much better park. He's in a better team. Like it's all good. Montas. I, I mean, start with this. I'm a huge Frankie Montas fan. Uh, One of my bold predictions this year was that Montas, my bold auto new predictions was that Montas would be the leading scorer among all pitchers in auto new. Now it's a bold prediction for a reason, but I'm a big fan of Frankie Montas. That hasn't changed. I still want to roster Montas, but he has traded out a great park for a terrible park. He now like he's got to face. Well, you're going to tell me Boston isn't any good, but he's got to face Boston, who I still think has a good offense. He's got to face Toronto. Like, he hasn't faced Toronto yet this year. He's faced Boston once. He pitched well against Boston. You know, Tampa is not like a super great offense, but they're not bad. It's just his schedule got a lot harder. His park got a lot less forgiving. And I'm not, I don't know, as somebody who has Montas on a lot of teams because I'm such a big fan of him, I'm not downgrading him. I'm not selling him. He's not going to like drop down my rankings in any sort of meaningful way. I'm just sad. (laughs) It's just not where I wanted him to go. I just, I want him to be super successful and I want him to have a better landing spot. And I want him to not be successful for the Yankees. So Amen. I'll get, I'll get over it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think
1: much more needs to be said when you kind of put it that simply, it is a downgrade in a multitude of ways for fantasy. Um, and, and certainly the division that he now has to face is absolutely brutal. Chad, I think that wraps it up for the mate, not even the major, a lot of the minor moves and transactions and ups and downs that have taken place over the last couple of days as a result of the trade deadline. Is there anything that you think we missed?
2: I think the one other thing I might mention is just, I, I think a lot of people expected both Sean Murphy and Wilson Contreras to get moved and neither did. Any and he and half. I have to wonder any and half, but Ian Happ doesn't matter. I mean he matters to me, but not for what I want to talk about. <laughs> Ian Happ matters. I'm a big Ian Happ fan, but like outfielders, like outfielders rarely block anyone or anything like that because you have three outfield spots, guys can DH, blah blah. Contreras and Murphy not going to the Mets says to me that they might think Francisco Alvarez is is ready or close. Because that team has World Series aspirations. They should and James McCann, who just came off the IL and they slotted back into the lineup, is not going to get it done for them. And I, I think there are two interpretations of the catcher market at the deadline, as far as the Mets are concerned. One is they couldn't get something done, and you know they should have tried harder. They should have been able to make a move. Like you got to, you know, shoot your shot when you got your shot, and that's and they have it now, and they should have done that. The other interpretation is. They looked at Contreras. They looked at Murphy. They looked at the prices and said, we're going to wait on our guy and he'll be up soon enough to help. And so, you know, we'll see if that's what actually happens, but it did leave me wondering if maybe they'd be more aggressive with Francisco Alvarez. And so that's something I'm going to be watching for. I like it. I
1: like it. And when you think about why a team would not call up Francisco Alvarez, those are reasons the Mets do not care about like, oh, one less year of control. Don't care. Like it does, does not matter to them at all. They'll throw, if he's worth it, they'll throw $200 million at him when when the time comes. But uh, I, I I think that's a great call and an interesting perspective on those two non-moves. Um, but that'll do it for us, folks. Please give us uh, ratings, reviews, all that good stuff. We'd love to see that stuff. Get your feedback on the show. Follow us again at, at keep or cut where we tweet out the episodes. Um, follow Chad at at Chad Young. And you can follow me at at Pete B baseball good luck this week and we'll see you next monday